Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. <clears throat> You're listening to the Sans Pants Network. Home of comedy, <laughs> culture, <laughs> adventures, and ghosts. Hey everyone, welcome to Boogish. I'm George Dimrell. This is a show where we ask you what's your story and what does it say about you. Today on the show we have comedian Jez Watts. How you doing, Jez? Hi, I'm just excited to see you say a tagline you said you don't stand behind anymore. Look, it's <laughs> it's been a couple of years. What's your story? I came up with it. What on, does it say on, about you? Yeah, I think it's pretty good. I think it's pretty good, but like, it's it, I don't know, it's a classic, do you want to just develop from, change it, you know? Yeah, it's, it's the kind of thing that I feel like when you write it, you go, that's great. <laughs> and then, I don't know how many episodes you've done, but yeah, probably the more you hear it, you're like, it's a little pat. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. As a yeah. comedian, you get that. And it's like, yeah. yeah, I could probably do something. Like, what does that even mean? So I, I do a podcast with my partner called the Tiny Vet Podcast. But um, I decided like 10 episodes back that every episode I'm going to have a little rhyme. <laughs> oh my god! <laughs> They'll hopefully be funny or whatever. But now it's this thing where sometimes we'll record five and a hit because it's a pretty short podcast. And I so I'll have on my phone like a list of rhymes or whatever. But like this happened a couple of times where I'm like, now I'm obligated. The format is that I say the rhyme. And so now I'll get maybe four episodes and I don't have a fifth rhyme written. And then I'm trying to improvise a little rhyme and it sounds stupid and Nicole's making fun of me. And it's like, I don't know why I created this problem for myself. You can decide not to say your catchphrase. Yeah. I mean, I need some sort of... You can decide at any point. You don't really need a catchphrase, but at least mine's like, doesn't require any effort. Yeah. Your one's crazy. (laughs) Although you did do an entire show that was a musical about bunnies. So that's... Nobody thinks that's sane. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Why don't, why, here's my pitch for your new catchphrase. Okay, um, let's hear it. Um, uh, uh, this is bookish. I'm George Dimorelos. I have a mustache. Saddle up and ride. <laughs> is that beyond the tone that you told me to keep to? No, no, I think that's is fine. That okay? I didn't see anything wrong with that. Great. <laughs> Saddle up and ride, baby. <laughs> yeah. Might be not appropriate with certain guests I have on if I'm saying that in the moment. It depends. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we have this uh, lawyer for human rights. Saddle up and ride. <laughs> What's more right than mustache rides? <laughs> this has so, gone too far already. No, okay, no, look, let's... it's fine. It's a co- comedian. It's okay. So I guess a quick summary of you until now. You've been right. doing comedy for how many years now? So nine years now. Nine years now. Yeah. Started in Perth. 
Sadly. <laughs> if anyone's listening from Perth, you're bad. No, I had some great times. The audiences there are great. But I do think it's a bad scene to start comedy in because the audiences are too good. And so you end up, you start crushing immediately with terrible comedy. And then, the, so it happens to almost every Perth comedian. At some point, maybe two years in, you think you're the best comedian in the world because you're playing to sold out rooms exclusively and everyone's great. And so then you go interstate and then you bomb very, very, very badly <laughs> for however long you're interstate. And then uh, it's this thing that happens with, essentially every Perth comedian has to go through this adjustment period where they either go, I'm moving interstate to get better or I'm going to go back to Perth and never leave. And that, it's probably 50-50 split, I reckon. Really? Look, it's, yeah. it's a bold move to move it's, into state. Like, dude, it's hard. Yeah, no, I have multiple friends who like moved either to Canada or the US. Like to go, I'm going to give comedy a real go. And then they come back a year later and they're just like, yeah, maybe I'm not even going to be a comedian. <laughs> it's this brutal. Is, this hard. is hard. It's a hard thing to do. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I think the same thing with the Queensland comics. I'm always impressed. That's why I'm always impressed when one comes down and they're like, pretty I much feel like actually go. loads of the best comics here are originally from Brisbane or yeah, it's or that's a, yeah. Even I, it's, I've it's, heard it's the same thing. The crowds there can be very, uh, but yeah, it seems like a, a good team to develop in though. I mean, t- at least judging the output, you know. Yeah, because there's yeah. a lot of good. Uh, so maybe you're saying Perth isn't the same because. Oh, I mean, there's definitely some great people who've come out of Perth for sure. Laura Davis and uh, Ben Russell's from Perth and stuff like. There's there's some really great comedians from Perth, but it's just it's too rewarding a scene. It's, it's, it creates a problem. There should be hardship in comedy. There is. I, although I do think it is actually is a good starting place in a weird way. Like as long as you get a realistic view, because at least you, you get have to your develop... first gig in Perth and then move elsewhere. Yeah, because like you know, like just little... to give you a little sweetness yeah. and then to balance out the rest of the sour of what comedy can be. <laughs> I don't think it could be like you know the classic thing where it's like you get a lot of support at the start when you suck and you still suck, but at least you've developed a bit of inner confidence because you've gotten that external confidence to begin with. Yes, you know what the, I, mean? I guess the bigger question is: Should there be more comedians? <laughs> is that one thing we're really lacking? in society is people doing comedy. I don't think that everyone needs to do it. Probably I don't. Yeah. But I'll, I mean, I need to in my soul. But yeah. I don't think society needs... I reckon if I probably... I reckon if I'd continued with my neuroscience research where I was trying to solve spinal cord injury forever rather than quit my doctorate to do comedy full-time, I reckon maybe society would be better off. Do you reckon um, better? people walking? I mean, people walking, some people laughing occasionally with you instead of someone else on that same night. <laughs> yeah, I don't yeah. know. I just... Yeah, because there's never a time where you're like, oh, I need comedians and you can't find them. They're yeah. always comedians. <laughs> yes. Yeah. But yes, that nine specific years. dick joke changed the world. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah, absolutely. My dick jokes are so different from everybody yeah, else's. Yeah, <laughs> yeah no, I definitely think it's, uh, it's one of those things which uh, sometimes it annoys me, comedians who think like we're speaking truth to power and doing important stuff. It's like, mate, you're just another like, oh, I mean, you can enjoy it for yourself and you do it because you want to be creative and that's great. But absolutely. Like, no, I give it the credit of being like, yeah. it's important. <laughs> what I do is so important. It's like, come on, man. <laughs> a few years back, I was hosting a show and then after the show, it was like a book lineup and then I open mic afterwards and so I was hosting the book lineup and then like I was leaving and then like the open mic afterwards was hosted by a different person and uh the guy who was hosting the open mic like when I went oh god like we're doing he did it's basically a big speech about how like this is the place where we speak truth to power and <laughs> and like the truth about society and like comedians are the last bastion of freedom and experience like this, this super overblown thing and then he did like three minutes on eating ass. <laughs> and I'm like, 
man, like just see what you're doing. <laughs> you don't have to look at everyone else. Yeah. Like it's such a crazy juxtaposition. But like, I mean, yeah, there are many comedians who are amazing and do incredible stuff. But I feel like the best comics don't take themselves that seriously. Yeah. As I've taken myself less seriously, I think I've gotten better at comedy. Yeah. You'll find the, the good ones. Even as they're saying really good stuff. Yeah. yeah and, they, and they don't call it's themselves not thinking even of, pros. As or soon what, as they like, start thinking that they're doing the truth about them, that's when they start sucking, I feel like. Yeah. Yeah. I it's think a it's a weird you, thing. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 Don't like, sit on the stool. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't want you to sit on the stool and tell me a long thing for 12 minutes about how no. you can't say anything anymore. Because <laughs> you're saying a lot and you've got a lot of contracts. Yeah. yeah. Sitting on the stool, that's good. Anyways, okay. So you've, you've summed up basically everything. I guess there's so yes, the, the neuroscience thing and then you've gone into comedy, which is a bold uh, switch. Uh, yeah, it was definitely something that disappointed my uh, fiance's parents. Because, um, yeah, actually, yeah, I, I just posed a joke about this. But when I proposed, I was still in the middle of my neuroscience doctor. And now, then I quit that and now I do comedy full time. You put, you got the ring on the finger and then you... Yeah, and I, that's going to be such a disappointment <laughs> for everybody into a involved. And for like, definitely for a couple of years after I quit, because like a doctor, it takes a while. It's like, like a five-year process or whatever. Like I was doing mine by research. So you have to like develop a thesis and... Blah, blah, blah. Like I was legitimately trying to cure spinal cord injuries was my thesis was about. And it's something where for about two years after I had fully quit and I wasn't going to lab anymore and I, all that kind of stuff. And I was just doing comedy. Like still Nicole was telling her mother like, oh yeah, the doctorate's going well. And <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I think it'll be finished soon. And so she's like, I don't know how to tell. Basically she told me, she was like, I'm going to wait until you're living off comedy to tell my mum that I'm marrying this idiot <laughs> instead of a doctor of neuroscience. And uh, I think she was right to do that. Yeah. Look, a good call makes it easier. Yeah. yeah, and that's the thing. Now I live off it. Yeah, living off it means I cut my own hair. I steal most of my groceries <laughs> from the cold self checkout. You know, like I mean, I live off comedy. I don't live well. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, I, at one point I owed her a bunch of money, and you know, <laughs> love this I've, image of painting, right? Now. No, but I've paid it all back. I paid yeah, it all yeah, back. Okay. I've, no, I don't know where anything. It's a very equitable relationship now. We split all our bills down the middle, and I paid my half of everything out of comedy. But it's like I just live poorly, and she lives well. Yeah. That's about following your dreams. Yeah, so I cut my own hair and she owns three horses. <laughs> Love the three horses. It's three horses. It's just excessive. It's so many horses. It's, it's a lot. Even owning one, I feel like, is huge. Yeah. It's, it's like just one for every day of the week. Slowly she's building. It's, it's crazy. <laughs> let's let's do the book and then jump around from there. So basically, yeah, sure. as I said before, we do the book and then we find connections between you and the book. They might not be there. So Whatever you like. Your book of choice for today is... The Running Man by Richard Bachman. Nay, Stephen King. Is that the right? Nay, is that right? I think you've done that. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, it was uh, written by Stephen King under the pen name Richard Bachman. I think at this point, it's definitely, it was very early in his writing career. And then he had already started making a name for himself writing horror. And then he wrote some stuff that was not horror at all. And he's like, oh, I don't want to dilute the brand or whatever. And oh, I don't know if it's good. And they're very sort of raw. I mean, I don't know if you've read all his, the Bachman books. No, no. But they're mostly pretty short. You can tell a young author wrote them. Like they're visceral. They're very just emotionally resonant and sort of boldly written, I would say, in a way that his other stuff is... It's more refined, I suppose. It's more fully developed. 
But yes, this stuff, they're, they're essentially most of them are like novellas. All right. Uh, but okay. they're just, oh man, they're awesome. They're so good. But yeah, The Running Man, from which the Arnold Schwarzenegger movie was vaguely based. Classic movie. <laughs> yeah. Such a good movie. So, so good. Killian! It was very, very good movie. But uh, yeah, I guess they optioned the book. And uh, I think then Arnie got a hold of it. So uh, I started mentioning this before the record, but at the time, Arnold Schwarzenegger was very known. He would be smoking his big stogie cigars and he would just walk into like a writer's room or the director's room or whatever and just be like, there needs to be 30 one-liners for me in this movie. (laughs) And there will be nothing in the script like that. The character didn't do that at all. And he was like, no, that's me. That's you're going to rewrite this script. This character now is a one-liner guy. So good. (laughs) So, yeah, so they completely rewrote this movie and I think they, they essentially built it around Arnold Schwarzenegger's Arnold Schwarzenegger vehicle. The book is so different yeah. and it's better, I think. Like just quickly to go on the movie because we probably will focus on the book. But like, Yeah, I would assume. Just to clarify, it is the most Arnie, I reckon possibly the most it 80s is so Arnie movie. so 80s I've and ever, over the top. Yeah. It's yeah. Because more obscure people don't know it as well and it's just the one-liners in it are... <laughs> They're Man, the best. Like, yeah, it's just so just to very quickly summarize the plot. Arnold Schwarzenegger is part is in a dystopian society, is a rebel. He gets thrown into a live game show of death where some of the executioners slash sort of pro wrestler style villains. Professor Sub-Zero, who is a big fat guy in a glowing suit that freezes people to death. There's a guy called Buzzsaw. He has a differently colored glowing suit who's also a big fat. Like every one of these guys is huge and fat. I don't yeah. know for some reason. Probably just former wrestlers. Yeah, and stuff and like he's that. got like big chainsaw and stuff. Yeah, this, Jesse the Body Ventura is like one of the main villains as well. Pretty sure at one point he splits one of the guys in half and says he had to split. Yeah, that sounds about right. Yeah. <laughs> Yes, I can't remember any other one-liners, but man, it's a it's a great fun film. Yeah. Whereas, yeah, Running Man, the book. Did you set someone on fire and say, "What a hothead"? That sounds right. <laughs> that sounds about what a movie. The, okay, about the tone. Yeah, that's. Uh, but but yeah, the book is. Let's go to the book. It's <laughs> very, but it's very focused on the societal aspect of the dystopia. There are no over-the-top executioners. Well, let's let's clarify what the book because it's completely different. Plot, yeah. right? So what's the actual book about? So it's it's sort of this, um, let's call it a sort of 1984-esque society, right? But it's more like a corporation-led thing. So there's a corporate big brother, let's call it. And then, you know, people are in poverty. You sort of, you go, you wait online to sign up to participate in these game shows of humiliation that get broadcast to everybody as the way to keep the populace, you know, placated, opiated. And so you go in, you line up because uh, the main character's uh, wife is sick. I think he has a kid maybe that's sick. The wife has to like, you know, sort of turn tricks and stuff to keep them fed because the main character can't find work anyway. It's no work. And so he goes, he lines up at the office of this corporate overlord office. And based on this battery test, then they go, hey, you can participate in this game game show, that game show. There's a show called Climbing for Dollars, which is one of the only things that was kept into the movie, where you're climbing this rope and there's savage dogs trying to bite your butt and stuff, right? And it's just like, oh, there's you grab this credits and dollars and stuff to feed your family. But uh, this guy, Ben Richards, who's the main character, he's really smart. He's physically fit. These are things that are uncommon in society because everyone's poorly fed, you know, and poorly educated. And so it's this thing where he ends up qualifying, qualifying, qualifying for like the top game, which is the running man. And normally most of these shows, maybe you get humiliated, maybe you get injured. Running man, you die. 
essentially the hunters, these agents, investigators, they're following you around and you can go through the whole of continental United States, you can go through the whole world, these hunters will track you down and the longer you can stay on the run, the more money you get for your family that needs it. But ultimately you die. Nobody ever makes it out. So he's making the ultimate sacrifice to save his family. It's very sad. (laughs) He had to split in the book. (laughs) (laughs) Ultimately he does it then in a fairly joyful note. But the main character does die in a way that is kind of beautiful and resonant, you know. Hmm. But uh, yeah, Arnie gets away. Yeah. Yeah. At one point, he's in a large Hawaiian shirt. Yeah, sure. Yeah, smoking a cigar. Yeah. <laughs> like, so did you go down a tunnel of Buckman? Yeah, yeah I read it. Everything published as Richard Buckman. So I think there's a little omnibus you can buy, which I think has three or four books. And that might have been all of the Buckman books. But yeah, there's another one called the, I think it's called The Longest Walk. And there's a lot of themes of, I think, sex and death permeates certainly my comedy, but also uh, everything Richard Bachman publishes big themes of sex and death. And I think you could probably argue that there's a lot of that in his horror also. Definitely. But I feel like the Bachman books is very focused on that, you know. They're all great. They're all very good. and But I think, yeah, tonally uh, feels a lot less refined in a good way from his other work. Well, I think the joy of like a novella and stuff like that is that you can really make a crazy idea and then yeah. like you don't have to develop it out. To the, like exactly. If it's a novel, it has to yeah. be a bit more. I don't need a full structure and yeah. a massive arc and stuff. You know, like I could just, oh, this is an interesting idea. Yeah, it's interesting how when you change the length of a story or do you decide, oh, it doesn't have to be a full story. Like you can do more evocative stuff sometimes. You know, uh, Kevin Smith, like the director, Kevin Smith. Yeah. Um, so he's not good anymore. <laughs> <laughs> like he made some cool stuff. Yeah. No, like Dogma is great. And like, yeah, he made a couple of things that were great. And like, then he just had to keep working, I suppose. He was out of ideas. But uh, there's a great story, I think, from when he's in film school that I heard from his longtime collaborator, Scott Nosier. And so the, the writing assignment was to write, essentially a cold open, but to write a hook. And you don't need to write any more of the story. And so uh, Kevin Smith wrote in this class, you know, they're reading it out to the class. It just opens like this. Uh, one man is, is just savagely beating this other dude and blood's coming out. And it's like beat him half to death, like very viciously, like whipping him and hitting him. And then he puts on like a priest's collar and then dusts himself off and walks out of the room. And I think that's a brilliant example of, oh, if you don't need any more of a story, what a great hook. Oh, I want to know what this vicious, like you don't know what that is. Now it's all recontextualized. What is the rest of that story? There is none. Yeah, There is none. And the great thing about these novellas, I think, is that Stephen King didn't need to really make these things more believable and fleshed out. So yeah, so they're more powerful, I think. Yeah, it doesn't have to be They're quicker. Obviously, good and bad. So, like, as in, that's great because, yeah, you, you can have more wild stuff and you don't need to do it. But obviously, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, lacks, so, these stories be, are very extreme, I think. Yeah, you can get yeah. away with a, yeah, you don't, it's the weakness is that there's not a fully developed thing in it. But I agree yeah, that, like, but like the, it gets yeah. to be fun as well. Is it fun? Yeah. Oh, listen, I think uh, The Running Man, the book, Running Man, the film is fun. Yeah. That's just fun. Yeah. Uh, the book is, I think, brilliantly written and great and super engaging. I would say it's more high wire intention. It's almost like a thriller, I would say. And it's probably, because I haven't read it in a while. I wonder if I read it now, if I'd be like, oh, I was a little pretentious as well. <laughs> like, it's definitely, I think... I like I used to write stuff when I was younger and I thought they were great. And like, I don't know if you've ever gone back and read stuff you wrote when you were a teenager and you're like, 
oh man, like I needed to live a little before I started making these huge grand proclamations about the world and how everything should be. But yeah, it is definitely like, it's an excellent book. I wouldn't necessarily say it's like fun. Yeah, that's... Fun is maybe not its goal. Yeah, yeah. No, that, that's okay. So what? why is it your favorite? Why'd you pick it? Uh, I mean, what's the thing? You asked me like, what, two days ago, you're like, hey, let's, this will be your favorite book. And then I was like, how do you pick a favorite book? It's, that's, yeah. That to me, I, that my, was my first thought is like, why don't, because I don't want to say, <laughs> I almost felt like, okay, if I pick any one book, I'm insulting the rest. Yeah. <laughs> Very common problem, yeah? Yeah, yeah. 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 So I, I was sort of, and then I was like, okay, but we'll, we'll be interesting to talk about it as well. But I mean, I actually, I haven't read it in a long time. But it's definitely something that I think when I read it, I would have read it as a team. And I'm pretty sure when I bought this omnibus, because I used to go to the secondhand bookstore all the time after school, I, I might have picked it up even not knowing that it was Stephen King. I think maybe I read the blurb or whatever, you know, because it's like five bucks for a secondhand book. So, but yeah, it was something where I think I, I read these and they they had a big impact on me at the time. And it, it's just this thing where it's such a great story and it's so focused. And then this film adaptation is such a just a chaotic mess of fun. And I just I don't know. I think it's I think it's interesting how stories change based on the medium and who's telling it. And that's sort of why I went, oh, why don't we talk about that? All right, so that's, that's, that's something which you found. How does that relate to you, I guess, is a thing? Hmm. Do you notice that in your writing with comedy? Did you notice that? Yeah, I think so. I think definitely, I definitely think the tone and the goals have changed a lot. Like I just was in Perth for The Fringe. And so this is my, I want to say sixth, maybe seventh festival show. As you mentioned last year or something, the show was a multimedia comedy, a choose your own adventure musical <laughs> about bunny rabbits. Normally, it's just me Bold. doing stand up for 50 minutes to an hour. But this year, it was more or less like a best of show. I was doing like 25 minutes of stuff from like the first eight years and then 25 minutes from the last year and a half. And I had a couple old friends come, like friends from high school, who like we sort of see each other more or less once a year where I'm like, hey guys, I'll give you free tickets to my show come along and then we'll go and actually catch up, you know, like, like so I don't live there anymore, but it's you know, nice to see them. Yeah. So one of my old high school friends said, Hey, you are a lot better, <laughs> which is very nice. You got to also, that, yeah. he said it in a way that like, he's been biting his tongue previous shows, like, cause he's a friend, <laughs> Yeah, which like, I was like, as well. yeah. so as he complimented me, I was like, Oh, I can feel the insult under that. <laughs> but you but weren't till now. Yeah. No, no, absolutely. Yeah. No, I'm definitely better. Yeah. yeah. Uh, somebody yeah. asked me to write a blurb and I was like, he's been doing comedy nine years and he's a lot better than he was. But yeah, it was something where he said that he noticed so much of what it appeared my goals were on stage had changed because a couple of years ago, he felt like I was still trying to deliberately shock and gross out the audience. And now so that stuff is still in there, but it doesn't seem to be the goal. And I wonder how much that's to do with last year and a half of therapy. I think maybe a lot. But this is the thing, Stephen King's storytelling changed so dramatically. The Buckman books are certainly, he might have finished them off when he was in his 20s, maybe, and published them then. But they feel like a 15-year-old wrote them in a, a very raw, resonant way. And I think, yeah, as you get older, as you mature, as your craft develops, you know, not only your execution gets better and more refined, but also probably your goals change. You're not going like, yeah, I want to freak these people out. And you're like, oh, I want to take them on a journey or whatever. Yeah, you want yeah. to show them a 
You want to do more than just like say. Well, that. now it's like I want everyone to have a good time. I feel like it's more <laughs> it's more the goal in my comedy than it maybe was in the past. I think in the past I was like, yeah, I want to do. I mean, certainly when I first started, I was very, very offensive and had no stagecraft behind me to back that up. And so I was just making people very uncomfortable. So rare year. for an open mic. <laughs> That's true. What? Yeah. I was telling the truth. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I mean, definitely it was something. And I think now it's like, yeah, definitely I have this more craft and it's more consistently funny and stuff. So it's all great. Like there's something in science that like, it gets drilled into you. So scientific research, a lot of it is actually presenting to other people, whether it's other scientists or, or the public or whatever. So let's say probably your time is broken down as a research scientist. Let's say it's about 30% asking for money, which I is a good skill in comedy. <laughs> but 30% of it is like applying for grants and getting funding and all this kind of stuff. Like it's actually a very big chunk of your time. Yeah. Uh, 30, maybe 40%. And then probably I reckon 20% of it is either preparing for or delivering presentations on your research. And then maybe 30 or 40% of it's actual research, you know, uh, which always, that was part of the reason I actually was able to leave it because I was sort of seeing how my time was going to get broken down going forward. And I, like the people who are ahead of me and my, my professors and so on, I was just like, man, so much of this time is just begging for money. And it's like, that's not why I want to be a research scientist is yeah. to fill out grant applications. But yeah, anyway, there's, there's something in science they teach you, which is that if you can't explain something simply, you don't understand it, which I think is very true. It's like if you can't put something in very simple language and you, you're using all this fancy terminology, it's not because you're so smart and you really get what you're, and other people are so stupid as well, they can't understand it. It's because you don't get it. You can explain any complicated subject very simply. And I think with stand-up, I think when you're early on, I think the, the parallel there is the amount of discomfort you're causing in the audience. You think at the beginning, you're like, oh man, yeah, if I'm freaking people out or like getting people this reaction from people because I'm talking about such intense topics. And it's like, no, 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 you're just talking about them in a way that's not clear to your actual point of view. So you're making everyone uncomfortable. But like you talk, then you look at like a 10, 12 year comic, like Laura Davis, who I think we mentioned earlier, she has this incredible two minute bit about rape. It's not pro rape. <laughs> I call it a rape joke. It's not, a re- it's not a rape joke in the sense that, you know, open micers do it. But it is all about the subject and topic of rape. And it's about her potentially in a situation where she might have been or someone may have been predating her or whatever. It's so well done. It's so beautiful. It's so good. Her intent is cl- so clear and well refined. And I think that's the difference between like, let's say a journeyman to more expert level craftsman in the art form and then like a more you know introductory level. But yeah, the Bachman stuff is like, I could sort of see like, okay, I can get why he didn't necessarily want to put his name on this. Now he's big business, Stephen King yeah. at this point when he published those books and still now, obviously, but yeah, these things are, are visceral and crazy. <laughs> <laughs> and that's like, Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 
I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I guess that's too... You've done about 10 things there. I actually want to Sorry. ask yeah, you about. No, it's great. It's great. Uh, yeah, um, shut me up. So, just jump no, in. No, no, no. That's, that's <laughs> awesome. So like he was more raw then, but he's yeah. also just trying something out something random. And it's something which I think I forgot to mention with you in the, what you've just talked about. Yeah. You're a huge fan of comedy as well as being in comedy. Yeah, right? sure. like, I, see, I think that's you, true for a lot of most comedians. I know, but like, <laughs> it's true for most comedians, but for you, you're like, you're deep into like- Oh, I love com- it. Yeah, yeah, yeah you sure. love it. You're constantly listening to uh, albums. You're constantly, like, you're all over it, essentially. Podcasts sure. and things like that. yeah, yeah. You seem less sure then. Oh no, I think that's I think that's true for most comics, honestly. <laughs> Do you reckon? I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. Oh uh, well, I don't know. But maybe less for some people. I feel like but you're a more of a comedy nerd. Than I'm definitely a nerd. Yeah, I'm a, a nerd about comedy. anything I'm into. Yeah, I don't think most people are the yeah, comedy nerd. I know a bunch of stuff about video games, about movies, uh, about rabbits, and comedy. Yeah, and I, that's pretty much it. Like, you tell me you've been in many rooms where you don't know more about comedy than anyone there in terms of like the people who are involved and the specials Listen, they've done. George, and I've been like in therapy that. for a year and a half. I'm still not good at complimenting myself. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm not going to say that. Okay. All right, well, then <laughs> but I definitely say- love it. I'll yeah, yeah. Definitely I feel like, yeah. like it's pretty distinct. Like, okay, you the, can the, say The it. detail that you give on so the depth of knowledge you have is, okay. yeah, it's impressive. So it's interesting you're saying that about like looking at someone like Laura Davis. So you're, you're giving an insight, which actually I think people would be interested in because mm. it's good hearing a geek geek out about stuff. Fine. <laughs> <laughs> So to go into that further is like you're saying how, yeah, when you first started out, you were trying to be shock and awe and all that stuff with the material. Yeah, like when I first started, actually, yeah, Nicole asked me this the other day. She said, who's your biggest influence? And I think that changes over time as an artist for sure. And when I first started, I right around the time I started, I had just watched or listened to, I think I'd watched Anthony Jesselnik's first, I listened to his first album, Shakespeare, and then I watched his first special, probably within a month of starting open mics. That's a bad recipe. He is dangerous. A, he is a very offensive comedian who has excellently crafted jokes and a very, very carefully constructed stage presence and persona in order to do those jokes. Yeah. I was some idiot in Perth who was going, yeah, I'm going to do this. I'm, like, I'm thinking I'm reinventing the album. It's like, no, you're just being a regular open micer yeah. getting on stage saying awful things that aren't even funny. And yeah, it was just something at the end of the first year, I ended up, I threw away everything I had. All right. I literally got to 12 months in and I went, I've been on the wrong track. And I think some people who start later, because I started later, I started at 29. And I think some people who start late think they can maybe shortcut through because they go, oh, I'm developed as a person. So, you know, I'm not going to make all those early mistakes. It's like, but then it's, you know, I've heard it said before that your age of maturity as a comedian is only the amount of years you've been doing comedy. 
it's nothing to do with how old you are. And I think there's a lot of truth to that. You know, a one-year comic who started at 30 is not that different from a one-year comic who started at 20, except they look worse. <laughs> Brutal. <laughs> Sorry, it's the first time I've said that and I'm like going to write it down. I think that's pretty funny. <laughs> <laughs> Embarrassing. <laughs> yeah. uh, sorry, what was, your, what was your question? I forget how we got into that. <laughs> I'm so blown away by my own brilliance. Yeah, no, what am I even talking about? Even I've lost track. No, it's uh, that, that's because you would be able to see that, I think, more than most because of your comedy geekery. So you would even see how acts have developed over time oh, compared sure. to yourself. So I guess a few Well, I'm a big fan of other people's comedy for sure. And so, I, yeah, I do watch people a lot. And nine years is not even necessarily that long to have been doing comedy. It's definitely, it's, it's to a point now where I'm like, oh, God, I think I'm finding myself or whatever, finding my voice. Most people say like, it takes 10 years to find your voice. And I'm finding at nine years, I'm like, oh, I'm, I thought two years ago, pre-pandemic, I was gearing up to prepare to record my first album. And I, so I put all my stuff together and I did an hour show. And then at the end of that hour show, I went, I'm not ready. <laughs> but I still was like, yeah, I'll probably do it in six months, you know, I thought. And then the pandemic hit and I had to wait two years. And I'm so glad I was forced on the bench for two years because now I'm like at nine years in, I'm like, oh, actually, I think I get what I was trying to do in a way I didn't before. And so now that I've got my goals more sort of front and center in, in my own psyche, it's like, oh, it's much better to execute on them, much easier to execute. So how do you feel like that development came? Like as in, do you just reckon you... Therapy is huge. Huge. Everyone should be in therapy all the time. Um, no, therapy was actually a massive part of it. As most comedians are, I'm screwy in the brain. <laughs> I think in order to try comedy, you don't need to be crazy. But I think to stay in it and to particularly to leave a good career to do it and think you're going to do it full time, I think you do have to be a little nuts. You have to you have to have a hole in yourself that you're trying to fill with audience approval. <laughs> that your one or both of your parents didn't give you. <laughs> and yeah, and definitely, definitely uh, I have. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That's a, definitely something. Definitely, yeah, definitely I have that. That's part of why, you know, I, I sort of couldn't leave comedy, which I think most people who stay in it incapable of leaving because actually there's no good reason <laughs> to gear your life around it. There's <laughs> a lot of sacrifice you have to make, you know, like yeah. comedy's got this big attrition rate, you know, and often I'll, people will stop coming around. You stop seeing them. They've quit or whatever. And sometimes you run into someone, oh, hey, I haven't seen you for two years. You know, what have you been doing? And they're just like, oh, I've got a girlfriend. And they just like didn't need comedy anymore. And their lives are always better. They've got like good jobs. They've got a family. They've got kids. They've got a house and they're happy. And it's so funny because you'd be like, oh, geez, oh, that's sad. <laughs> like you turn the What a loser. <laughs> Idiot. Look at him not having to steal groceries in order to make his <laughs> weekly nut. You know, it's just like, no, they're doing well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah, anyway. That, like, I mean, that's an insight which I think people sometimes don't get with this stuff. Because like, and that's where it's better and worse in a way. Because like, you're not doing comedy because it's truth to power or anything like that. No, because, that's, it's because you just you have to do it. Because you need to. But like Nicole has the same problem. She's a veterinarian, right? She's veterinarians have the same issue in life that comedians do. And I think a lot of people do in life is that if you have a vocation, if you have something that you feel you are absolutely drawn to do that you need to do, not necessarily that you think you're going to be the best in the world at, but you just can't help but do that job. 
Well, that sucks. <laughs> You're much better off actually just having some office job That's you're great. not emotionally committed to that you go in, you get a paycheck and then you live for the weekend and you go and do cool things with friends and family and you're not really tied to anything in particular. Because once you, the moment you have a vocation and you can't help but do a thing, it's like, okay, now everything in my life is going to get sacrificed on the altar of this thing. Yeah. And like I'm happy. <laughs> I mean, I am. I actually am a lot happy. I'm very lucky. I'm in an amazing relationship with an amazing woman that I love very much. We're going to get married. It's going to be my second marriage. And the last. <laughs> um, but uh, but I'm, I'm actually very lucky in that I have quite a full life compared to most comedian friends of mine. It's much more full life. But my comedy is probably worse, probably less developed. My career is less developed. Than if I didn't have this full life. Yeah, because you, you know don't have what I mean? a single-minded focus. I would the- live in New York right now, probably. I have a friend called Rob the Billionaire, who is a billionaire, <laughs> in case you can't tell. But yeah, he told me a few years ago, he was like, oh, I'll just sponsor you for like, I'll fuck Wait, I'll- he's actually a billionaire. Yeah. What? This guy, it's so crazy. This guy was an orphan at an orphanage. And a billionaire came to the orphanage and picked a kid and said, this one's going to be my son. And they took him away and then he died. And Rob, the orphan, inherited, it's probably not a billion, it's probably like 100 million. Is he American or is he? He's American. How did you meet this guy? Uh, I met him because when I went to uni the first time, I also discovered like online gaming. (laughs) <laughs> and so eventually I got kicked out of uni because I stopped going. <laughs> but I was getting uh, off study, like government support. Really getting a whole picture of you on this <laughs> sure, podcast, yeah, I gotta yeah, say. Yeah. Real image. Yeah. But I was I would just play video games all night online. And so it was like early MMOs and stuff. And uh so Rob the billionaire and I were both in the same guild of uh, you know, we have a forum and we play games together and stuff like specific online games. And so we became friends through that. So that guild of let's say 15, 20 people or whatever. A few of them I became genuine friends with. And so when I got married the first time, I got married in Vegas with a Elvis impersonator while tripping on LSD, which you know about already. Um, this is why that first marriage didn't work out. Yeah. Uh, but Rob the Billionaire came to the wedding because oh. he was in the States. And so like, yeah, him and his, and his wife at the time were at my wedding. But we, yeah, developed a friendship through just like me getting kicked out of uni from playing video games. <laughs> but but yeah he told me he was gonna sponsor me i was like i'm doing comedy i want to come and live in new york and stuff and like he went oh, man well i was like oh i don't know if i can do it because of visa things and so I, I spent a year in in the states on exchange when i was at uni the second time when i finished <laughs> but yeah he told me he was gonna sponsor me and and new york would would be the best place for me to get best at comedy and i think probably right now if I, even if I was going to stay in Australia, it probably living in Sydney would make me develop faster right now than in Melbourne. You think the scene's better in Sydney right now? Not better. I think it's different. And I think some advice I got very early on from a comedian named Nick Sun, who has now become a shaman and is the he's guy. He's a shaman now. He's a full-time shaman. Right, like he was going that door. I didn't realize he'd actually. He's a full-time shaman. He is the guy who did a ceremony for me with ayahuasca. <laughs> <laughs> which you do vomit and diarrhea from as much as the stories. I diarrhea everywhere in front of Nick's son. Lovely. Uh, but he told me something very early on. I asked a stupid question that a lot of open micers asked, like pro comedians, which is like, he did my gig or whatever in Perth. And I was like, hey, how do I get good at comedy? What a stupid open-ended question is that? How is someone supposed to answer it? It's fair. Like, but you think in the beginning, you're like, oh, this person's good. Yeah. How did you get good? They're like, oh, 
He'd been doing comedy for 10 years. That's how you get good. But what he said to me was a great piece of advice, which I can never execute on, but I sometimes pass along to people. Like if you're just starting out now and you're in Australia, it's not the best thing to develop versus like the States has the best tradition of stand-up comedy. But if you're in Australia and you want to stay in Australia, the best way to develop as a comedian is to spend three months living in every city in Australia because the audiences are different, the social background and culture is different that you're playing to, the comedians are different. So your influences will be wildly different. Like I always feel like I write, like you've done Edinburgh a bunch and I always feel like whenever I travel, even if I'm not going for comedy, I always write a lot of great new material because you're in a different environment. Your mental patterns are going down different pathways because they're having different inputs. And so I think when you live in a scene, you get in a rut. And so I really love Melbourne as a city. I truly do love it as a city. And I think the scene is great also. It certainly was a huge step up from Perth, you know, like Perth is a small place and it's in a lot of the definitions of that word. It's small. Melbourne is awesome and it's very fun. It's not as good as New York or London to develop, but for Nicole, well, relationship is about compromise. You know, we picked a city that we were debating moving from Perth to Melbourne or Sydney. Originally, we were supposed to move from Perth to New York and then Trump got elected. And she said, no. <laughs> she said, it's going to get crazy over there. And I said, you're crazy. Yeah. How much power does the president have? And she was right. <laughs> and then COVID hit and blah, blah, blah. So now the plan is never to move there. But I'm probably going to go and do time in the States and stuff. But yeah, so I think right now, probably the best thing for me would be to be in the Sydney scene. Because yeah, different comedians, different audiences, different rooms. And I can always come back to Melbourne and gig. So just for the variation side of things. Yeah, yeah. I don't think it's a better scene. I yeah. think it's different. Okay. Do you know much about Stephen King? About oh, him? not that much. Do you know how much of a loose unit he was? <laughs> no. I you don't know, know that. that. No. Okay, that's interesting. Because like as an author, he was like, he's actually gone on record as saying, I don't even remember writing some books because he was just such a raving alcoholic. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. Back, back he had a Kerouac style, baby. <laughs> yeah, like he was just like, like, and I don't know where the Buckman series slots into all that. Yeah, But it's interesting. interesting the rawness of that and like his own demons that he's wrestling with and yeah, how he's developed yeah. over time. And I would probably assume the Buckman I could imagine, was, yeah, definitely from reading them, I could imagine, oh man, you could have knocked this whole novella out in three days. And not slept and just been on those reds, baby. <laughs> but no, I think that's interesting. I didn't know that about him at all. Because he's such a workhorse writer now, at least, you know. And like, no, he, he wasn't even then. He just was drunk during it. Wow. That's so interesting. And on everything else as well. Yeah. yeah. Oh, wow. He was on absolutely everything. That's why I have a lot of his characters in the. Maybe I should drink again. Is that what you're saying? <laughs> my writing will get better and more focused. Well, <laughs> it's interesting. That was not my experience of alcohol. <laughs> no, no. Same. I whenever I hear about anyone who does well, like, even with yeah, comics. Okay, this is going to sound real petty as well, but no, like please. whenever I see people who like are amazing and they're just completely abusing every substance whilst also being brilliant, I'm always like, fuck you. <laughs> yeah, and yeah. That's, for sure. I get that. Well, that's the thing because I, I think we talked about this pre-pod, but like I stopped drinking for a year and now I'm considering maybe not drinking ever again. And But it was something when I... After I'd stopped for a while, more than one person who didn't even know I'd given up were like, hey, you seem so much focused and more focused and sharper on stage. And then I was like, oh, turns out it was like I thought alcohol was loosening me up in a good way that was making me funnier. Like I mentioned this to my therapist because I was like part of going starting to go to therapy was this idea of, oh, I need to cut down, I thought, you know, maybe I needed to cut it out completely and I'm still sort of debating that or like where that needs to sit at. But it was something where very early on went to my therapist, my legal name 
you know this, is Jez White Rice Supreme. And so when I went to my therapist first time, I'm like, hey, I'm Jez Supreme. He's like, oh, so that's your stage name. And I was like, no, <laughs> that's my name. <laughs> my stage name is Jez Watts. And he went, oh, okay, so, so, okay, so you're born as Jez Supreme. I was like, no. <laughs> I changed it legally after I got married in Vegas while tripping on LSD. And he was like, let's book in for some more sessions than this first one because we got a lot to unpack quickly so I can understand who you are before we start actually dealing with the problems that you come here for. But it was something where uh, very early on, I think in that first session, maybe I said, oh, I'm a comedian. I'm you know, sort of do it full time. And he went, are you good? Oh, that was a great question because yeah, there's a big difference between someone who identifies as a comedian and someone who can be a comedian successfully. And then when we're talking about the alcohol stuff, I was like, oh, you know, I always have a drink or two before I go on stage because it makes me better. And he went, does it? And in the moment I went, yeah, of course it does. I've had two right now. For sure. Yeah, I'm loosened up for this session, baby. I pull out my hip flask. No, but it was just something where I very much so thought that that was true. But, it, you know, alcohol was inhibiting my ability to self-assess, you know. That's why I thought I was better. It's because I was not being as critical of myself. But yeah, I can't understand someone who generates anything good artistically while being hammered. I can understand if you're coked up or like on amphetamines and stuff. Oh, I can see how that might be good. I think it's a cocktail these guys are doing. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But you couldn't just be drinking booze. You'd just be sleepy. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but like, that's what I'm finding is though, because like, you obviously have these demons that you've wrestled with in the past and you weren't even aware that Stephen King went through this period. I have, and- I have little demons. <laughs> little, okay, little demons. Um, and then you vibing with these books, which are probably written, and I actually should look this up. Maybe he wrote this all when he was clean and maybe he's just a throwback. I mean, but I feel yeah, like this maybe thing, not- I, so I, yeah, Maybe I should look that for the podcast as well. But like, yeah, I have a suspicion that these were things he wrote in his late teens and probably then went back and sort of just finished them up and then put them out in his 20s. They feel like that to me. They okay. feel like the, they have the almost a, a desperation in the writing. There's a power and a driven sense to it that like, you know, Tommy Knockers doesn't have. <laughs> but yeah. yeah. Uh, but yeah, I wonder if he was all messed up as well. Yeah, because then maybe I just, I don't know, found it interesting. That, that yeah, connection for sure. There. No, if he yeah. used to, yeah, yeah. see it working. You've, and you've got your own stuff that you've worked through, which is great. <laughs> Great it's like you're against me getting so well this is weird just don't need more competition you, have to have to get oh, to, you, know you want you me to get, get better, better. <laughs> so you can look better like I have made that joke before about like when a comedian who's like great already and then they quit and you're like fuck damn it <laughs> like, you're already great I don't need you to be quitting too. wow I don't think I was great I think I'm getting now it's great uh, but I'm, yeah, I'm, I've seen such a huge improvement since I cut alcohol out and it was even this thing where like I've had a few drinks since that year off I didn't like get drunk or anything. I didn't have more than one or two in a day and like certainly not more than one or two in a week or a month. Uh, But yeah, the other day I like, I decided in advance, like we've been moving house since I got back. It was post-festival. I was like so tired. I was just like, you know what? I'm going to have an indulgent day. I'm going to eat KFC, like hang out with Nicole. I'm not not really thinking about comedy. I'm not really going to go out and I'm going to get drunk. And I discussed it with Nicole. Like, is this okay with you? She's like, yeah, yeah, for sure. We had like a drink together and then she went to bed and I had a few more. And then I was like, I think maybe only three or four drinks, which used to be the minimum. Used to be three three drinks every day was the baseline. Yeah. And I was wrecked from three drinks. And then like proper drunk, had a great time, went to sleep. And then I woke up the next day, I was so hungover. And I just feel like, ugh, I don't, <laughs> yeah. don't want to do it anymore. 
Because I've been cutting out red meat and stuff, and I feel like I don't have the taste for red meat anymore. Now, even when I, like, Nicole loves grilling, she bought a barbecue and stuff. And when she's grilling red meat, it makes me feel queasy. And I think, yeah, I don't have the taste for alcohol in the same way. But it's this thing, I think, having cut it out, it's like you almost need to reteach your body that it's a fun thing to do. And I don't think I should do that. (laughs) Seems like everything in life is better actually without it. And uh, certainly it's not paying for alcohol. Not that I didn't pay for most of it, but because, you know, bars and stuff, like, yeah, free drinks. But, yeah, not paying for alcohol makes it a lot easier to live off comedy. Oh, man. That's a big part of my income every year was going towards booze. Yeah, man. That's like, actually, that's one of the ones I'm more surprised when people, it's like, it costs so much. It's so <laughs> and much. Smoking is like, man, it's just it's so expensive. Well, the smoking thing is huge. Yeah, yeah. Like cigarettes in Australia now. Oh my God, they're so expensive now. Yeah, yeah. It's like 50 bucks a packet. Yeah, yeah. It's crazy. I can't believe anyone yeah. is justifying that in their head. It's, how Everyone else has we? a lot more money than me. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, cool. All right. I wonder if there's anything else we want to go into. No, I think we've kind of covered probably everything. I feel like we barely talked about the book, but it's that's about my your connection fault. To that's the my book. fault. It's about your connection <laughs> to the book. It's okay. Because uh, yes, the visceral nature of it and stuff. I actually, I've only read a few Stephen Kings. Um, oh, really? Misery and The Shining and It. Is the that's it? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, but that's... <laughs> he just pointed at me proudly. In Sorry, case you're like, yeah. <laughs> that's Sorry. it. <laughs> I should have I pointed at you in despair yeah, that I said that. But, oh man, there's so many great books. Yeah, I, look, I, I thought if Stephen talks up it, mm. but I just thought it was too long for me personally. Oh man, all those books are too long. This is actually maybe, this is maybe why I went to something like The Running Man as opposed to any of his other works. Yeah, Brevity is the Soul of Wit. That's something that I have to keep coming back to in my writing and stand up all the time. Every time I write anything new, it's just got so much just fluff and fat on it. And it's hugely long. And then by the time that thing gets done, after how many times I perform it and iterate on it, it'll always be 10% the size, you know, and it still has all the same punchlines in it as it as it really should have had at the beginning. It just has just this massive web of connective tissue. I feel like his early stuff, this the Bachman book stuff, it's focused. He's, there's no sense of, oh, I need to meet the page limit that the publisher gave me or whatever. There's no 500 page thing. The Stand, I don't know how long the, there's like a movie that, I think they, they redid the movies recently. I haven't watched it. But the old version, it's like five hours of movie for this book and they still left a big chunk out. Man, it's so long. It's great, but it's so incredibly long. I can see actually, now I know I initially was like, oh, you're not reading Stephen King. It's like, yeah, how much time have you got, man? Like there's a lot of pages. For the, for the big ones, yeah. Like I, mean, I thought Misery and Shining were yeah. smaller and more like. But I think again, they're earlier works of his. Oh, yeah. I, I think I he got. great. I think he got more self-indulgent maybe as time went on. And yeah, there was something I, um, don't judge me for this. I used to listen to Joe Rogan's podcast when I was younger, before I started comedy, when I was gearing up to start comedy. I like of all the things you've said on this episode. That's the thing I'm most ashamed of. <laughs> that's that that's the one you're worried that people will judge you the from. Joe Rogan experience. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Oh, look, I think it's fair. Yeah, that is the most shameful thing. I'm pretty sure everyone who's hearing this, listening, would be like, "Yeah, no, that's of course." (laughs) I wasn't going to have stuff, but yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm a roganite. But yeah, but I listen. I used to listen to his podcast. I think him and and WTF, the first podcast I listened to, and it used to be like an hour or two hours. I don't know. Who does six hour podcasts now? But it was early on. It would have been 
nine and a half, ten years ago, I think. It was just before I started comedy, I think, I'm pretty sure. Nice. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> oh, my God. Joe Rogan and Anthony Jeselnik, and you're like, I'm I ready know. for open mic. Why do you think I threw away the, everything at the end of the first year? It's the wrong people <laughs> to influence you. You could not be more cliche I mean, open mic. It's a sh- problem. It's amazing. It's an issue. <laughs> That's amazing. I recognize the Yeah, That's like a checklist. Yes. Now it's <laughs> Ali Wong and Bo Burnham are my two biggest influences. All right. See, they're great. Oh, okay. This is why I did Bunrum. Yeah, so, but I remember Joe saying, like, he had a guest on being like, this is going really long, hey? And he was just like, oh, man, it's all content. People love it. Like, let's, we could go longer, man. Like, let's do it. Like, what, what else have they got to do? He said to that person while I'm listening to it as he's just completely insulting me because I'm just, oh, just listen to any old schlock for four hours. Yeah. And I remember I took the earbud out of my ear and I pressed the button on it and I went, that's enough of you, Joe Rogan. <laughs> and I think... Stephen King, I don't think, you know, doesn't respect his audience, but I definitely feel like there's that saying like writing is in the editing and I don't think he's editing much out anymore. (laughs) And I don't think his audience wants him to necessarily. But that earlier stuff that's shorter, I think is by definition better. I mean, I think it's, and it is funny how like the bigger you get, almost the more you get to be self-indulgent, which totally ties into comedy as well. You Makes see you a big worse acts, artist. Yeah, the big acts get like, because they do have the fanboys yes. who just do want to hear anything. And girls. And girls, yeah. And fan thems. And fan thems, yeah. Uh, <laughs> is that the same? Days, yeah. <laughs> fan days, yeah, yeah. I think that would be the... What would be? I don't know. Anyways, um. <laughs> I see that you're gonna edit that out. <laughs> I saw you go edit point. Okay. <laughs> okay. So a hardcore audience is a bad thing for in any that artist. sense. Like, it, well, see, that's the funny thing because it's also it's good to appeal to a specific audience instead of trying to be too broad. But in this sense, when you get so big that you've got people who love you no matter what you do, that's the problem. That's the problem. Overly validated artists become worse. Yeah. It's hard in a way when you're that size to actually do that because you're not going to get that pushback. Absolutely. You it was, really actively push for it. Like I know he's cancelled now and I'm not I'm not saying advocating for him as a person or anything, but like there was, an ex- the example I always used to use as the only person who seemed immune from it was Louis C.K. For years had a huge audience. So none of this stuff had come out yet about his behaviour off stage. And so he wasn't cancelled, but uh, he had a huge audience that loved him and somehow his output kept being good. I think Bill Burr. Bill Burr is a great example. He's the best example of and, that. And he's not been cancelled. Yeah. Actually, that's a better person to bring up. <laughs> the reason I brought up Louis is for a specific reason. So he, his output kept being good, like strong and as artistically valid as it was pre his big fan days blowing up. But then he got cancelled. And then now the people who are coming out to his shows were the people who are hardcore right-wing Louis fans would come out to his shows and they would laugh so hard. Oh, man. And oh, I love when he talks about trans people. And it's like now his stuff kind of sucks because his audience is, just loves him. They love him so much. So the live shows, now he's gearing his comedy around people who, you know, by definition, love it when he's oh, selling they're not, they're off not the left. There. They're not there to hear jokes. They're not there for comedy. They're there because, yeah, he's anti-left, yeah. you know, yeah. which he never was. Give it to the lips. Yeah. But he's now become that. It's this real irony, I think, where, yeah, cancelling someone actually makes them more financially successful but artistically bankrupt. Isn't that, a, isn't that a really interesting thing that happens? That is like, an interesting idea. No one who's cancelling anyone thinks that they are improving that person's net financial position. In general, you are. 
because there's this right wing group that didn't have much comedy before. Now they get to co-opt anyone who got canceled. They're like, great, come to us. Now we can have a comedian that, you know, has a good craft, but then they ruin them <laughs> by laughing at everything they say. And it's like, no, you still, I know you're right wing, but you went back to Perth, man. It's no good. <laughs> I go to Perth and Brisbane. Yeah. <laughs> so these poor guys are just stuck in Perth everywhere they go now. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Perth is a state of mind. Yeah. <laughs> These guys. Okay. Well, we should call it that. It's been going for a pretty long. Oh, sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, that's uh, it's, it's been really fun. Um, so thanks very much for being on. If anyone wants to follow you anywhere, see any of the stuff you do, anything we want oh, yeah. to shout uh, out. Yeah, I'm on social media at Infinite Jez. This crowd would like that joke. Yeah, would they? <laughs> I'm, I'm actually wish I had not tied all my social media to that particular joke now because I'm like, all right, no one's reading David Foster Wallace anymore. And also when I originally picked that as my handle, it was less incels that were into David Foster Wallace. <laughs> <laughs> no, they just didn't have a platform. There was the same amount. <laughs> You just hadn't heard about them. Uh, but yeah, listen to the The Tiny Vet podcast. It's seven to 10 minute episodes every week about different issues about animals. It is also funny. That sounds, uh, people would like that. Yeah, it's genuinely, everyone who's listened to it has told me it's great. And then, and, but then there's a bunch of people being like, oh, I wouldn't be into that. And then they, whenever people do, they're like, it's really fun. Awesome. Yeah, so listen to that. Um, okay, well, thanks a lot for being on. Cheers, Watts. Thank you. Cheers. Thanks for listening. If you want to help support this show and all the- Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Want truly hydrated skin? Medocia's Body Care Breakthrough Hyaluronic Body Serum. It's clinically proven to increase hydration by 161%. It's lightweight, fast-absorbing, and delivers 24 hours of hydration for silky smooth skin without any sticky afterfeel. Treat your skin to clean vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order with code SUMMER at OseaMalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A Malibu.com code SUMMER. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The other shows we do here at Sans Pants Radio, then why not subscribe to sanspantsplus.com? For as little as $5 a month, you could have access to a whole bunch of bonus shows and content. Once again, that's sanspantsplus.com.